You're listening to the Bass Lessons Melbourne podcast, episode 2, P.W. Farrell. Um, welcome to another player profile video on Bass Lessons Melbourne. Mm. I'm joined today by my very good friend and incredible bass player, P.W. Farrell. Thanks for coming down, Pat. It's, it's P.W. Farrell's pleasure. <laughs> also known as Patrick. Pat. Patrick Farrell. The unit. Patio Furniture. Patio Furniture. Um, it's been a while. I know, man. It's been like three years. Yeah. Why did this happen to us? Uh, I guess I moved, I moved continents. You did move continents a bunch of times. Yeah. And I was incontinent. <laughs> anyway, how about um, we start off? Yeah. Tell us about your musical background. Okay, so um, I've been very lucky. My first instrument was piano. I started when I was five years old. And I never really practiced what they told me to practice. So I just went and sat in a room and bashed the piano. I made sick beats. <laughs> um, five years old, though, that's pretty early. Yeah, for making sick beats. Um, and then, I mean, music always took a very second place to rugby. I was a little rugby okay. player. Um, but I always loved music. And uh, then I went and I started learning drums. And I never really practiced what I was supposed to practice because I went and made sick beats. <laughs> and then I, I started learning bass. And I think the biggest, the biggest thing was um, that at that time, like, the time was just right for it to become my focus of a whole bunch of other factors. So, so how old? Um, well, I started playing bass when I was about 13 years old. Okay. 12 or 13 years old. Um, but I, for whatever re- for a bunch of other reasons, all the energy and everything I was obsessed with with sport, then suddenly I invested in music and then I practiced bass, you know, religiously on a technical level and, you know, really yeah. did all the things I didn't do on the other instruments. Yeah. So you just, how, how did you get into bass? How did you find bass? I was told to play bass. <laughs> so for once you did do what you're told yeah exactly so I um, I played piano and I love I love harmony from that and then I played drums I love pocket from that and then like all little kids I then wanted to play guitar mm. and obviously Not my school guitar. teacher needed a bass player so he said you know what Pat <laughs> I've got just the instrument he, for you did he <laughs> no he didn't he didn't, he didn't. <laughs> Uh, that's another program. <laughs> that's another. It's another time slot. Um, yeah, and he was like, "Okay, there's an instrument that's like more rhythmic than guitar. Has more of a role on a groove level. So it's kind of like the bass playing that you do. I mean, it's kind of like the, the drumming really? that you do. Is that how um, you sold it to you? Yeah, he was like, "It's like drums and piano. You combine those roles together, and you get bass. And so I guess I, that's actually a pretty good description of yeah your bass playing. There's also an amazing. Um, uh, rugby analogy for it. He was like, uh, you know, it's like the backs who are the fast ones and the forwards who are like the slow, strong ones. And it's like bass is like the halfback. It combines the. Anyway, you got to be into rugby to get it. But yeah. Maybe some people are. Yeah. Um, and was there anybody at that stage who was like a, a mentor or a teacher who you really. Oh, yeah. Like I said, um, I don't know. I sent you that interview, right? The one I did do in India. 
I did, I did. I got interviewed in India when I was over there. Oh, did you? For the newspaper over there, yeah. And um, I ended up like talking about my teacher from school for ages because I just realised how huge influence he was mm. for me. See, because like I um, I was telling um, you know uh, Sam before, like I actually was a terrible school student. Like I actually I finished grade twelve, but I didn't get a mark because I was kicked out of so many subjects. And if it wasn't for for music, you know, I'd I'd probably be you know. I don't know, tagging a train somewhere. Just man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was this teacher that really got me on board, this guy called Anthony Dawkins, who lives in Melbourne, actually. Okay. okay Moved down right. here as a bass player, but now he, he's actually an architect. But he was just like this... So, so you can afford to have a house and feed... feed yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, but he was just such an incredible all-round human mm. that it made me really inspired you know and his whole trip was he was really into the eastern philosophies and he sort of applied that whole you know like the Tao of archery the Tao of like the this idea that if you practice something methodically enough and immerse yourself in it it actually helps you spiritually as well so that was my trip because like mm. as you know my family's very religious background um so for me like I took that on board and used that music you know is your, and, uh, yeah your faith yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It was. I needed something because I wasn't really on board with all the other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it, 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 it really for me. It's a really practice, especially practice. Okay. You know, is that almost a meditative? It used to be. I think I'm coming full circle because um, music actually is very scientific. You know, and, and and a lot of like the the postgraduate study and stuff I've done is all about the science of music and um, how it is actually a very rational thing. Like, obviously, we have emotive responses to it. Am I talking too much? No, it's your interview. Okay. We have, <laughs> pe- people, people have like an emotive response to it. So it is, it can be a mystical experience for people or whatever. But I mean, music really is, can be, I mean, the harmonic series, rhythm, the logarithmic nature mm. of our hearing, everything like that can be explained on a scientific they're level. Not, they're not some bolts. Yeah. And I think it should be. Like it annoys me that that's not taught in music education. Okay. So you're a Jeff Berlin no, because at the same time, I think that when something's executed properly, it should be still kind of... It, it needs to come back to the folk. It I needs get, to be yeah. dirty. I guess it's kind of like... It's like... Oh, I hate to use this analogy, but it's kind of like cooking, you know? There's a recipe book and there's like, you put this with this and next happens. At the end of the day, it has to but taste good. At the end of the day, and that's up to the chef. That's how you combine it, how you... Not just the chef. It's also up to, you know, the decor of the restaurant, the vibe, where you're eating it, the people you're with. And that's where I think, like, setting is really important. Mm. But, but at the end of the day, like, so just, you need, I, I, I think that what's awesome about music is that all that matters ultimately is how it's executed. You know, so, and that's where, some, not, not singling Jeff out in particular, but, um, you know, some, some, sometimes when you get academic, then it can sound academic. Mm. Whereas to me... Yeah, sure, I like styles of music that other people might not like. Like, I love fusion and I love jazz and I love all that modern harmony. But in my opinion, the guys who are really good at that are good at it because it still ends up sounding like music. And that, that to me, is something that comes from, like, a deeper Mm. folk kind of place, you know? Like, the best... um, You know, I don't know if you've heard that Branford Marsalis album, Requiem? No. There's a track on that that's in 15... And then 14. And it just goes between 15 and 14. And it's Jeff Tane, Watson drums. And you don't notice it at first. Because mm. you're just like, this is slamming. And to me, that's what... Yeah. You know, that's when something's musical. Yeah. Yeah. You know? like, what, like, you know, I always think, like, what have you got to say? 
Mm. You know, you, okay, you've figured out your craft. Yeah. What do you have to say? Yeah. Some people have, some people just repeat things other people say. Some people have original thoughts. <laughs> For me, um, figuring it out on a scientific level really actually helped my craft. Like, I was already playing for, like, 15 years before I started to really think about it. Like, why is it an octave an octave? Why, okay. you know, I don't know, maybe other people learn that stuff straight away. But for me, like, it was only really, you know, later on that I started to go, wait a second, you know, why is it truly a universal language? And that's mm. when I started looking into how our ears work and how the harmonic series really works and things okay. like that. And that followed you... Yeah, it just just for me it, it um your foundation. It 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 helped me on on a musical level, but it also helped me understand why it's important to persevere with this art even when society doesn't go. We appreciate you. Yeah, you know because yeah. um here's super at the end of your gig. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's not it's not you know unlike you know speech, unlike verbal communication, music isn't some sort of arbitrary set of symbols. You know, like, music at its core is a, is a natural phenomenon. You know, it's the, it's, it's the law of physics. Mm. And that's what makes it completely unique to other art forms. Mm. We're not saying, you know, a perfect fifth sounds almost as stable as an octave, which sounds almost as stable as a unison. Trust us. <laughs> we're like, no, it actually does. Because of, you know, and, and to me, that's an amazing thing that we're dealing with that mm, cool. as artists on yeah. the fly, you know. Um, so you're from Brisbane. Yeah, I was born in Brisbane. Born in Brisbane, and then you studied. Okay, yeah. So I was born in Brisbane, um, and I studied in Brisbane, um, and then in my twenties I moved to Melbourne for six years. So what did you? Um, what What did you study in? So, yeah, like I said, when I was in high school, I hated institutionalized education. Yeah. Hated it, um, and just got by through by the skin of my teeth. Um, then sort of went to the Conservatorium of Music in Brisbane because I was told that that was the appropriate thing to do. So I sort of did it again begrudgingly, um, was gigging more than I was studying. So I actually okay. took a year longer to finish it because like I just didn't show up to class cause I was gigging. Um, and then I moved down to Melbourne and I did postgraduate study. Did you move down for postgraduate or just? I moved down for the scene. Right. Yeah, and then when I was down here, I started thinking more about my academic history and how I'd always done it sort of begrudgingly. And I thought, what? how would I go if I actually applied myself? Mm. So I sort of did it for a, a personal level just to kind of prove to myself that, you know, I had the, you know, you know cerebral power to actually, you know, do well at it. Yeah. Um, so I went and did this postgraduate thing at VCA. Was, yeah, so I moved down here for gigs, for the experience... And then that was the first time I was exposed to actual academic writing, you know, doing a thesis and things like that. Yeah. And how did you find, I mean, moving to a new city as a musician? Um, I found, personally, I, because I moved back to Brisbane and I didn't really mean to move back to Brisbane. Yeah. Um, it just sort of happened. And it, it made me reflect a lot of my time in Melbourne. For me, I've told you this before, I feel like, there's lessons that I've only just now realised I learned. Mm. Um, for me, my first love is is improvised, improvising over functional harmony. Yeah, you know, so I love the jazz tradition. Um, basically, like the true essence of fusion. So I love pocket playing. I love grooves. I love great drummers, <laughs> and I also love improvising over changes. Yeah, um, 
And moving to Melbourne was the first time I got to do that on a weekly basis. Yeah. I used to play at the Cape Live um, in the middle of Fitzroy there with Andy Sugg and Kate Kelsey Sugg and Nick Lamb, Kumar Sean, a bunch of Melbourne cats, Aaron Light, Aaron McCullough. Um, and basically got my butt kicked for ages um, till I really, you know, and it made me sit down with theory and really work on my, my yeah, right. harmonic knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, really good from that point of view. Mm. An eye-opener, things that I didn't realize, you know, at the time, you know, we talk about this all the time, like acting off, being a goof, being a clown around people, actually, you can't actually do that with everybody. And it's only Melbourne that taught me that. Right. Because some some doors were like not open that I thought were open. Yeah. You know, people say to you, man, love your playing, you know, would love to get a lesson sometime or whatever, but then you never get offered the gigs they're getting offered because you've failed a social... Yeah. test yeah and that's a melbourne thing and it's it's probably all big cities where there's yeah. like 10 times as many players as there are in brisbane yeah. you know in brisbane i just feel like everyone's a lot nicer but it's because you know i think that there's you know like i said there's there's not the weight of industry there's not the weight of there's there's 50 guys all going for the same gig yeah so there's not the added pressure to also be super cool you know what i mean <laughs> But, but you are super cool. So. I am pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah As so you can tell from the 20-minute answers I've given so <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I don't, blame, I don't blame Melbourne. Like, I think Melbourne's an awesome yeah. town. Yeah. I just think part of me, part of what I struggled with moving to a new city is, like, just knowing how to keep my cards a bit closer to my chest. Yeah. I want, wanted everyone to, you know, I'm very open and honest. Yeah. And I think, especially in New York and places like that, part of it is probably about just... Playing the game. Just being quiet, even. Just, like, just, you know. Yeah. So it was interesting, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, and so between, like, so studying and then Melbourne, like, mm. what kind of gigs were you doing? In Melbourne? I just just in, in general, like, I mean, were you doing just jazz gigs or cover gigs or cruise gigs? Everything, man. Everything. Like, that's always been my thing is I just say yes to every gig. Yeah. Um, there's certain gigs I've never really had to... Like, I... I you know, my, my background is, is drums and piano. So for me, I need some sort of pocket and I need interesting harmonies or like all, and I need one or the other. So um, a lot of those gigs where the bass is more texture, um, you know, in terms of like punk, you know, um, really like dirty grunge, heavy, like that's not stuff that's ever really floated it for me. Okay. I've always liked stuff where I can hear the drummer and really sink into what he's doing. So whether it's sinking into his kick or his ride or whatever, mm. that's that's my favourite context for p- parts. Um, so I didn't do those gigs in Melbourne, but I did... Um, so, so in Brisbane, I used to play a lot of Latin music, a lot of world music, um, and then a lot of covers... Uh, just paying bills, you know, a lot of corporate stuff. Um, and then when I moved to Melbourne, I was lucky. I got to do a little bit of session stuff, um, mm-hmm. playing with that, did that thing with Bridget Pross and Peron Land, those guys. Um, Brazilian, playing the Brazilian Choro music with um, Ollie Williams and those guys. Um, no, they didn't really get into the salsa scene in Melbourne. A country, you know, that, that Jetty Road gig and the yep. tour, the world tour, that was the biggest sort of tour work I did yeah, was yeah. in the, the country thing. Um, and then the fusion jazz thing with Andy Sugg and those guys. Um, and then I was still always doing just the money-paying corporate yeah, yeah. slug gigs. Um, and then teaching. Teaching Melbourne was the first time I really started teaching properly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and throughout your time in Melbourne, you were working on your 
composing and writing? Well, I finished my album down here. Yeah. So the album was like a long, slow process because I'm not good with deadlines. I just, you know, and I tend to write um, the way I improvise, which is like, yeah, I, I go in for method or whatever, but I only really put in the hard hours when I'm feeling it too. Mm. Um, and that was the thing. So the album sort of was written in, in fits of of late you know night. emotional outpouring and um yeah late nights and uh because i compose in a computer environment so yeah. i do a lot of production as well yeah so yeah i finished it down here you know which surprised me because you know once again back in brisbane where things are so much more easy mm. um this album's not getting finished because i feel like things like that get finished when you're under the grind mm. yeah and do you feel like you the album is a good representation of where I was. You? It's a good representation of where I was. Okay. My playing has improved a lot since I recorded that album. Um, I think. I don't know what you think. Yeah. Well, but, um, I think I think that's what an album should be. It should be like a, a date stamp of... Where you're that. at. Yeah. I think it's... I, think it's, I, so, I, I, don't, I get worried. Well, I try not to think about it, but sometimes I worry I won't be able to write an album like that again because I think that that album was uniquely accessible. You know, like everyone I know who reviewed it or whatever... The, it's an it's an not an alienating amount of fusion or jazz whatever um, yeah. whereas now I find it kind of hard or almost probably even dishonest to not bring that much language into it you right. know? Um, it was as much a, a producer's album as it was a player's mm. album yeah yeah there's lots of yeah. cool stuff on there um, talk about gear for a little bit yeah sure obviously this isn't your this axe. isn't my axe no, no. Um, what is your axe Oh, I'm gr- glad you asked that, Craig. Let me tell you about my axe. You've never heard about my axe, have you? No. Yeah. Um, no, I, my main... My I, need, main... I, need, I need to know the exact millimetres on the, mm. on the 12th fret. I could actually tell you. I know. Mm. <laughs> uh, so, should I... I haven't looked at the camera once. I should be looking at the camera. MTD, Michael Tobias Design. <laughs> uh, and Daniel Tobias. Those guys are amazing. And so my main axe is an MTD... Uh, which I've actually custom... I've got sort of custom electronics in that base. It's a 535? It's a 535. Um, at the moment, starting... I've had that base for over 10 years. It's been played a lot. And I'm starting to consider maybe getting a 534, which is their 34-inch scale length. Just because I play so much chordal stuff in, in, in my projects. Um, and uh, it's an amazing base. It's a walnut cap. I mean, you can see it on, you know, my channels and stuff. Which is... Uh, well, the most popular one is P.W. Farrell's Bass Lessons, because there's bass lessons on there, um, and pwfarrell.com for, for all the other things, um, and brisbanebasslessons.com if you're in Brisbane and you want bass lessons. Also, I teach on Skype, not taking anything away from... No, no. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. But so yeah, MTD, MTD do amazing bases. How, how, and how did you arrive at MTD? Because it's not, it's not, you can't really walk into a shop and, and try an MTD. That's the thing with a lot of these. A lot of my decisions have been sort of <laughs> have late night bursts of yeah, yeah. And, and it was a late night burst. It was it was so okay. So basically, um, the first amazing base I ever owned, which I still own, is a modulus graphite fretless. Yeah, and it's that's an amazing base. Um, and so that, was that also a because I mean a modulus graphite fretless mm, that's another thing you can't really just walk in that was a that was a the parents going okay if you're going to do this do it for and real and was that Jackal or Gary Willis inspired no it was um, Anthony Dawkins 
my teacher at the time okay. was on tour in Los Angeles yeah. and my parents had basically said to him if you see an amazing bass pick it up for our son and he saw that and picked it up and it was and it was fretless it was a fretless five string and you're like bang I was like yeah it's an amazing bass so the dimensions of that bass influenced the fretted I wanted to get because I, I had had a few fretted basses since then and none of them really were working as well as the fretless yeah. and I really wanted to get into fretted playing more because I wanted to get explore harmony a lot more and okay, not yeah. be influenced by the intonation aspect at all yeah. um, and so based on the dimensions of that bass it's a 17 millimeter bridge 35 millimeter uh, 35 inch scale length I um that's why I purchased the MTDs because I just looked around did a lot of listening and they came you know, that scale length and they weren't going to charge an exorbitant amount for putting a custom spacing on it. And, um, I just sort of took a gamble and went for it. Um, yeah, I mean, MTD is not really a gamble, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. But, but I mean, like in a lot of ways, play something you don't really know, right? Yeah. But like I said, you know, like I, I put my custom, you know, I, I, I customize the electronics right. So I make them a bit darker than they are. <clears throat> the gospel chops zingy thing is kind of what they're known yeah, for, yeah. and that's not really what I'm trying to do or known for. Yeah. Um, so I, I like to have a you know the passive tone knob in there so I can get the darker thing. Yeah. Um, but but you but you kind of only really customize a lot of stuff like halfway through because I remember when I was here last time that was when you got mm. started changing it out. So you had it like stock for what five or six years or. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I just figured out, I mean, it was just me problem solving. Right. It was like, okay, how do I make this feel more like my fretless without it being a fretless? And, you know, that's when I sort of was really looking into how some of my favorite players, like the Mac Garrisons, etc., get their sounds. Yeah. Um, that's when I sort of discovered this idea of the passive tone knob. Yeah. You know, it's a different approach to just rolling the trebles off. Yeah. It's like a different thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I did a few things with that bass. Those guys were really nice. They let me change the neck on it. It originally came with a maple neck, and I sent it back and got a rosewood fingerboard put on it. Um, and uh, and then I got the yeah the electronics with the passive. Mm. Yeah, and so I am. Um, that's why I'm interested now in looking into getting one that's a, a walnut body. Right. You know, because I think that's very interesting. Because at Nam I played a few basses that were made of walnut and made of walnut and. Yeah, they were amazing. Yeah. yeah, it seems to be pretty popular wood now. Or maybe it always has been, but it seems come to the forefront a bit more. The thing, the thing that, that's hard with bass is that um, the character it takes on changes a lot in the mix, and it changes a lot mm. as you get louder. And so from that respect, this classic scoop DQ is the safest because mm. it always works. Like Unless you've got too many bottom and too much subs, but you know I go through that high filter thing. Um, unless you have too many subs, there's not much that can go wrong with kind of a scooped sound. As you get more of a present mid-range thing, it can be, when it's done perfectly, it's amazing. But the balancing act is very fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it can end up sounding too boxy, you know. Um, and I think that's, I've been talking to the MTD guys, and I think that's the danger of going full walnut, you know, and wenge or wengi and all that stuff is that as it gets too loud, it can, and that's why the sort of maples and the ash, you know, are so popular mm. because they just work. Yeah. And so that's, that's my reasoning is like, okay, well, I've already got, my MTD has an ash body. Mm -hmm. It's essentially like the classic woods, except it's got a yeah. walnut cap. Um, I've got that now. Yeah. And it's usable. I've been playing it for over 10 years. It's not like it's me being exorbitant. Now I want something a bit different, mm. you know. 
but you've also experimented in the P bass, the jazz bass. I love my well. P bass, man. Yeah. Like, so I, I, um, it depends on the scene. One thing I noticed about Melbourne is everyone plays a Fender. Like, everyone plays a Fender, and if you don't play a Fender, then you're not a real bass player. <laughs> um, which, you know, if I had have lucked out and found one of those um, amazing vintage Fenders that you can set up like butter, yeah. then that'd be cool, but they're hard to find. Yeah. And so I really love a bass that plays like butter. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's the MTD. Yeah. So I have my P bass, which I love because it just works. Um, but I use it on gigs where that's really what yeah, I want. Really required, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in Brisbane, the scene's much more everyone's playing different styles of music and people don't really care if you show up with a five-string or a four-string. Yeah. You know, they don't judge you on your bass. I think things have changed here. Maybe. It's been, like, put three years now since I've been down yeah. here. Yeah. see a lot of other stuff happening. Well, I mean, there's just so much music in this town. Yeah. And I think Hiatus Coyote, all that happened after I left. Yeah. And I think the Hiatus Coyote thing has changed the perception of electric bass in this town. Yeah. And, you know, also Lucas Taranto touring with Gautier yeah. was, he was playing the, what, Federa. six string Federa. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, things are changing. Yeah. Which is Definitely. Yeah. Apparently, Mel- uh, Sydney's a lot more like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot more people don't care if you show up with the six or five or whatever. Um, you're talking about, or you mentioned Matt Garrison. I mentioned Matt Garrison. It's a pop song. Um, in my opinion. <laughs> it's Nickelback. <laughs> Whoa. Anyway. No, give, give, us, give, give us your whole list of influences. Okay, obviously song. everyone says Jarko, and Jarko was a huge influence. Um, but not for the same reasons that he was a huge influence on everyone else. For example, my favourite Jaco playing and my favourite Weather Report album is the one that's got a few names, Volcano for Hire. It's also called Record. It's the one where on the back of the album cover it's a picture of a person pressing a record button. It's a Weather Report album. It has that um, Dara Factor, one, two, three, four, the New York City. Anyway, <laughs> so Jaco and Weather Report. Jaco and Weather Report, huge... I think for me, Jacko was more of an inspiration and an influence. Like, it was just like, okay, wow, that's a guy. It's just like a... I mean, I forget sometimes how into fretless I was. So there was definitely a time where... I mean, when I was a kid, man, I used to show up to covers gigs with fretless. <laughs> like, but, like, I remember sitting up in the, in the park up there in Brisbane outside South Rugby Club um, in the park just with my bass and headphones and, you know, transcribing Jarko. So, like, I definitely have been into Jarko. Yeah. Um, start at the beginning. The beginning. Jumeriquai. Oh. Yeah. And Dig. Zender and... Stuart um, Zender, Emergency and Planet Earth, that album. Yeah. Um, and Dig, which is an Australian band, Directions and Groove. Amazing. Who was the bass player's name? Oh... I know his name. And yeah. you know, Sam Dixon. Sam Dixon was his name. Um, he actually taught a friend of mine. Uh, and then Brothers Johnson. And then Parliament Funkadelic. And then Miles Davis, kind of blue, album was given to me. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of this is Anthony Dawkins, my teacher, <coughs> saying, okay, now check this out. Um, actually, my sister went to Poland and came back with this crazy mixtape of random funk. And I used to listen to that all the time too. Um, and then, um, <laughs> you then Weather Report and Jarko. Okay. And then more, the reason why I don't go on about Jarko for ages is because actually a way bigger influence for me than Jarko was Gary Willis. Yeah. And Gary Willis to me 
is the most underrated bass player in the world. I mean, people know about him. Obviously, people say he's great, but I mean, I think he's way better than people realise. Like, Gary Willis is... You took that, you took fretless and just bass playing in general to... Oh, man. Like, have you ever have you ever tried to transcribe his stuff or have you ever tried to read I've tried his to, lines? I've tried to play one uh, night nightclub. Mm. Yeah. I remember my teacher at uni gave me a nightclub and that was kind of my first, right? Okay, let's let's yeah. play Gary Willis and I was just going... Holy smoke! And it was quite slow and stuff, but it was just oh, but his his his, but also his groove, like his groove playing yeah. and his writing, his writing, man, like on bent that album yeah. is amazing. Um, speak that track, speak. Yeah, but um, <clears throat> Gary Willis has everything in his playing. Like he has all the chromatic sixteenth um, passing note stuff from Jameson. Oh, but also like this is the chromatic sort of, oh, like, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, his groove playing down there. Oh, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. He's like the only dude I've ever met who I was starstruck right. in front of. Yeah. Because, you know, I got to go to Nam last year and the year before, and I got to meet everyone, and then I met him, and I was like, eh, eh, <laughs> I love you. Mate. I love you. <laughs> I want to be on you. I have many bound books. Yeah. My best um, smells. So of- Gary Willis. Gary Willis, huge influence. Yeah. Um, and then the next person to really floor me after Gary Willis was Matt Garrison. Yeah. And the same reason, sound. And then just as I was like coming to terms with Matt Garrison, <laughs> Hadrian Froh yeah, just punched me in the face brain. <laughs> and, you know, it was really... Um, because of Hadrian that I I started really getting into the four finger thing more than Matt. Four finger just, thing being Um Well I I did it I don't know if I can do it on your bass. Oh, my bass isn't just, just... Was, you, because it's, it's a very specific the, the ramp, setup. The ramp. Yeah. Was that when you go into the ramp as well? Yeah. Um yeah, the ramp is definitely a part of that yeah. um, that whole thing. So once you play a bass that is set up differently, it is a different feeling. Also, I've, I, I use pretty light strings at home, so it is different. But um, yeah, to answer your question, I sort of have never um, settled on one way to do these. I have a whole bunch of different things I do with my own four-finger technique. So... <laughs> um, so my way that I did it for ages was this weird mishmash of first finger, third finger, second finger, and then fourth finger. And that kind of came out of like a John Myung kind of like three finger kind of thing. Yeah. Gary Willis is three. Gary Willis is a, a different trip again. Like the Gary Willis thing and the Mac Garrison flamenco thing are two different things but they're both free stroke not rest stroke or is Gary uh, it's a com- I mean I don't I think it, I think it's a combination of all of that you know like I mean I mean I think Matt Garrison is more Gary Willis is is very rest stroke he's very like he is has it? this kind of yeah this I'm no expert on the way Gary does it but you, but you, the way he does it is, hey you just said you're an expert on Gary Willis <laughs> well but to me he's more palm muting when I think palm muting yeah, that stuff. Yeah, which, that's what I think. Which, yeah. I was never one really to copy someone else's techniques because mm. I was more. I always thought that my way was better. So like, nobody can tell you what to do. Yeah. <laughs> so I always worked on my own techniques, and because as you know, I had the wrist problem and stuff. So mm. I was very, very 
specific about how I played sure, in particular. Yeah. Um, but the main thing that's amazing about Gary Willis, you know, we spoke about his groove stuff before, but also um, his complete original invention melodically when he's improvising. A lot of big name guys repeat themselves a lot when mm. they solo. Um, in the pursuit, perhaps of um, intensity, okay. but Gary Willis seems to, in at least to me, I don't hear him playing a lot of repetition and reusing old yeah, loops right. and stuff. You know, I, I think he's amazing. Mm. And then Gary Willis, I mean, then uh, Matt Garrison, um, and Matt Garrison for me was a bigger influence on me technically. Although, like I said, all the palm eating stuff I got from Gary Willis. I'm using two fingers instead of just thumb and finger. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever you know, I'm trying to do. Um, and uh, yeah, I think um, then Hadrian. Hadrian's ridiculous, obviously. Yep. He's just got a, a bit of... He's, he's Jaco 2.0 um, in the modern era, plus all the chordal stuff. And, yeah, he's just one of those dudes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about education. Mm. It is a lessons, base lessons thing. Mm. Um, and you are... What is your... Hmm, how do you phrase this? I guess, what would be your approach and emphasis in terms of fundamentals for players for me i i find if i'm left to my own devices and i just am freestyling i naturally am inclined to connect with you know adults because i i want to talk about yeah the science behind it and i want to talk about all the reasons why and then we go off and just do it um, so I've actually put a lot of time and effort into creating my own syllabus yep. so that that doesn't happen. <laughs> so, okay. so, so that, so that I can, um, I'm not really sure on, on, uh, on the legalities of copyright stuff. I'd have to ask you about that actually, but you know, I like to sort of teach, you know, teach, um, kids, you know, where the natural notes are on the neck by showing them melodies. little little things like that so because for me um let's just let's just put aside the whole science behind it thing for a minute and just talk about the instrument yeah for me the most common thing with bass players is that they actually don't know the neck mm. of their bass yeah they don't know where the notes are yeah um so i spend a lot of time wanting to drill in uh the the the, the c the c major key center and just get people to actually know where the notes are on their instrument. Um, you know, or, or, or alternatively doing it with a chromatic scale, but I just really need people to know where the notes are on their instrument. To me, that's such an overlooked thing. Mm. Um, and how do, how, how do you map out your fingerboard? Well... I mean, how, how do you think you learned it? See, this is, this is where teaching is different to learning. Because my way of learning at that time was very different to mm. how a lot of students want to learn. But also I think a good teacher is, should be able to, because everybody learns differently. So I have students who are, who are great with rhythm, show them it cool, and I have other students who mm. struggle with it. And it's finding a way to connect with all your students yeah, um, and not necessarily bending them to your... Well, I mean, that's a big it's philosophical all, it's all discussion. The, it's all the same there's also a lot to be said for... 
authentically and honestly doing what you do really, really well. And if that doesn't appeal to everybody, then there's other styles of teaching out there too. Mm. Um, for me, I, like I said, I have a big syllabus and that's how I sort of, I, I tend to find people, like you said, like some people, like I've had students, I, I teach, actually have a lot of students who are professional bass players and, you know, the guys will come in and um, they'll have some some weakness in their playing that they want to work on with me. Mm. But oftentimes it's it's borderline sharing because then they'll have something else that they're really naturally great at, Yeah, you know. Um, I always think times like that, like some people just have this amazing inner tempo yeah. um, and they've never really had to sweat about it. Yeah. Um, and then there's other players I know who are like world-renowned players who had to work on it really hard. Mm. Um, even Steve Gadd says in that um, in a famous drum video of his that it's constant adjustments, constantly adjusting you know, yeah, the pocket okay. and keeping on it. Um, yeah, but I mean, to, back to your question, I think that less information, for me that's been the big lesson, less mm. information. Yeah. So just, you know, today we're only touching these two things and we're going to touch them at whatever speed you need, like, so that it, you actually learn something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Bridging success. Yeah, and that that really then has improved my connections with all styles of learners. Because mm. one thing everybody wants, no, nobody wants to feel rushed or overwhelmed. Exactly, yeah. Um, I, you know, occasionally I'll have a lesson where at the end of it I, I feel a bit guilty and I'm like, man, I feel like I said too much. So I try to always have some visual component, mm-hmm. whether it be just like a handout I do, what I do a lot actually is I have my all my students on we, so like I told you about the website BrisbaneBassLessons.com and there's a student portal mm-hmm. so we'll do the lesson and <clears throat> we'll talk about something and I'll bring it up and we, I won't, it won't be printed it'll just be brought up on the computer and we'll talk about it yeah. and then I post it to the student portal to their own well I mean you know it's, oh, it's just yeah. a behind the scenes thing yeah it's a, it's a behind the scenes thing yeah. that you need a password to get into yeah. um, and then you know it's all contained there to me, that's been a huge help is like having, always making sure that I'm not just freestyling off topic. Like I need a visual. Yeah. Thing. You need it. <laughs> I need it. Yeah, yeah. Because, because I didn't learn the way other people learned. Yeah. You know, I learned with a real like, um, like hardcore mentality. Like, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people don't want that. Yeah. And, and I mean, how do you feel about, cause obviously this is on YouTube and there's that dichotomy between anything you want is on YouTube but anything you want is on YouTube it's like it's a blessing and a curse because it's it's kind of overloading for I know almost every student I have is like oh, I was watching this guy on YouTube I was learning this song on YouTube mm. and it's kind of like when we, were, we didn't have that yeah. when we were growing up and I'm just wondering what kind of effect that's going to have on the next generation of I think it's already having an effect yeah like all these South um, South American dudes that are showing up on Facebook, these amazing Brazilian yeah. bass players and stuff, I think it's already having an effect. And, and you know, in, in so many ways, like in terms of exposure, yeah. like I think it's lifted the game for everybody. Like yeah. I was talking to this with, you know, P-Rock the other day. It's like, Who's you know... Who's P-Rock? Mark. Oh. <laughs> I was, yeah, sorry. Uh, Mark Perrick and I were talking about this the other day because it's like, you know, 20 years ago, if you went and did what you know, a lot of us do, 
um, that was like before YouTube and stuff like that was you were then the guy like wow you can do that yeah whereas now you're compared to like the best mm. you know and, and you know you go to the NAMM show and it's like just tons of people who can do all you know everything yeah. and, um, you know and it's been good for bass playing because I think to you know you have to actually go and, and make sure you're actually tapped into the tradition and not just shredding shapes you know mm. um also, YouTube can be uh, a blessing and a curse because, like, for me, the thing I, I personally am unsure about is whether to just cash in and just say, like, you know, here's, here's you know, bass lesson, do, boo, do, 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 do. Part of me feels like that's already out there. Yeah. So I want Frame to have my own angle. personality. Yeah. And so one thing I do do is I like improvising and I also like production. So on the PW Farrell's Bass Lessons channel, um, I've, I have been presenting this format where I do basically a remix or, or, or a rearrangement of a cover mm. that might feature more than the bass line. Mm. It might feature soloing in chords. Um, and then afterwards I give a lesson on it and I give a lesson on yeah. some of the things I use plus how to play the original bass line. Now, 99% of the feedback's been positive. But then the negative feedback is so brutal. Like, it's like, you know, swearing in it and stuff and like, and yeah. irrational. Like, I read it and I go, you're an idiot. Like, I'm a professional <laughs> bass think, player. You can't think it's useful, I, though, you know? Yeah, I don't play like this on, I'm doing this because for me, I had to find that kind of playing. Like, I had to find records where bass players soloed and I had yeah. to, you know, I had to find that other thing. Because of my background, I didn't pick up the bass and think, bass lines. I picked up the bass and thought, let's make music. Mm. And, and, you know, when I put up videos of me soloing and playing chords, that's because I'm not playing in a band. You yeah. know, like, it's why, if I'm doing something creative, why would I want to watch a bass player by himself going... You know, like, you know, like, th there's a point where it's amazing and you're like, yeah, that's fat. But at the same time, I want to hear music. Mm. So when I'm doing the touring, like, the blues thing... You know, I'll be playing my P bass and I'll, you know, play hardly anything because like, that's the vibe. The one in the five, yeah. Yeah. And to me, that's what an artist is or a musician is feeling, fe feeling out the context and responding to the context. Someone who can't respond to the context to me is kind of missing out. Like this is just an instrument. It's an instrument. You can do whatever you want on this instrument. And when you play a pocket, when you play a part, it's got to be fat. If you're improvising and being creative, you, man, we've got four or more strings. Mm. There's no reason why you can't speak the same way a piano player or anyone else speaks. To me, that's not a no-brainer. I've never understood the idea of an instrument being defined by the name of the instrument. Mm. You know? Yep. Or it's perceived raw. But you better get it right. Because if you go in and you start finger-tapping when everyone wants you to be supporting them, yeah. then you'll quickly have no work. Yeah. You know, and to me, I, I don't want to be like, I've never wanted to be one of these solo bass players who's like on stage with a looping pedal. Like to okay. me, that's the path of loneliness and long <laughs> drinking binges. I, I, I like making music with people. With people, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're going to improvise on bass, you need to create a context where that is giving to the context and not taking away from the context. Yeah. And sometimes that means arrangements. Sometimes that means having a keyboard player who will lay a fat pad beneath you. Sometimes it means, you know, making sure you're playing in a jazz setting where, mm. you know... Do you think you're, um, like, you're, 
having produced your own album, do you think your production skills or, or having that mentality helps in terms of thinking where you sit and what I think so. context? I think so. I, I think because I play a lot, I, I have... I have you, you play a lot or you really play regularly? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Because, because I always have the instrument in my hands, yep. um, in the past, I, I have finished a gig and I thought, wait a second, no, nah, I got too inside. I've had to work on trying to get outside of my bass player Get outside head. of your head. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and part of that's from... I think I've gotten better at that from hearing other people get it wrong. Okay. You know, and being on stage with someone and then you're like, no, that solo should have ended like two choruses ago. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, or seeing other bass players and be like, oh, you know, and maybe there, maybe I think I went through that phase. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think you also like say with my Jackal project, like if it's a, if it's a legitimate jazz project or something like that, I think you need to also fight for that as well. Mm. Like, you shouldn't be stressing about, you know, people not understanding that this is complex music and, you know, in the right setting. But if you're getting paid to be a baseline player, then you're playing baselines. Yeah. Yeah. What was the question? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Soz. <laughs> that's all good. Um, I reckon that's probably about for a lot of I think. Yeah? We've nothing about a lot of different things. Yeah. I don't know. Is there anything you want to... Something you want to impart? Oh, there's so much I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, in uh, in January, I was really lucky. I got to go to Calcutta and play at the Guitar Festival there. Mm. And it was. I remember I used to have this sort of. I used to imagine all the time what would happen if I went, you know, to an alien planet, and all their IQs would double our IQs. What sort of music would they listen to? It would, would it just be beep pop beep, beep pop and then everyone's like <laughs> and then I'll hit to one zero zero one, you know, um, and so I was I was in India at this thing and I was going to these classical Indian um, concerts and Indian music's different to to Western music in that Western music's cadences really hinge on the harmony like a five to one harmonic cadence. Whereas Indian music's strongest cadence is a rhythmic cadence, which is a T-high, which is a, essentially a phrase where the last note of the phrase ends on the top of the rhythmic cycle. But the phrase has to consist of three phrases of equal length. <laughs> you know, one, that sort of thing. But they'll do, you know, you know, way longer and, you know, so, you know, you'll be watching this concert and it's like a slow, what we would call a slow seven, four or something. And there's things like building and you're sort of getting lost in the rhythm. And then suddenly everyone starts applauding. You're like, what the crap is going on? And then you realise it's these massive long rhythmic cycles and everyone's been following it. And they've all been sitting there counting, uh, little old ladies, little yeah, kids, right. they're all sitting there counting along and, you know, even if it takes five minutes to resolve, they all, they're all hip to it. Rhythm king. Oh, man. And, um, you know, I, I just, I gained a deeper insight into just how much music, important art music has been marginalised in Western society, mm. especially in Australia. Right. But in Western society in general, 
because, like I said, you know, we're talking about complex stuff in India. Yeah. Music over there isn't a distraction. It's not something you sort of do next to the pokies and next to... Pokies is Australian for slot machine. Um, it's not something that you do as a distraction. It's something, you know, if you become a, a leading musician over there, you get given a new title, like the essence of becoming a knight, yeah. you know. And so for me, that was very eye-opening. Okay. Um, and I think that if you're going to be a professional musician who actually cares about art music, cares about the kind of music that you need to improve constantly through your whole life, you have to, the fire has to come from within you if you're in the West because it's not coming from the public. Yeah. Um, and we can try to convince ourselves that there's some sort of art in playing pop music and that it's an instrument. Man, I'm sorry, but if you want a lifelong pursuit that's a rewarding lifelong pursuit where you actually do improve your whole life and you do actually need to practice, and then it, it's it's beyond the realm of pop-friendly radio music. Like, there's just so much to be learned holistically, you know, from, from, from art music, from jazz and from improvised music and classical. There's so much more than what 90% of us have to play to get paid. Mm. So that fire has to come from within you. I'm not saying that there aren't amazing session players playing pop music. I'm not denouncing that at all. Like guys like Neil Stilbenhaus, mm. I idolize. But what I'm saying is there's so much more and it, and it makes you a more in, in whole person. You know, if you if you start really pushing the boundaries with your music, it makes you a better groove player. I believe that. Mm. You know, these guys who don't have any understanding of the fretboard and don't do anything beyond playing the groove lines, and then they say, oh, I'm just a groove player. I'm like, are you really? Like, what happens if the singer wants to do the song in upper tritone? Like, mm-hmm. are you still a groove player or are you a tab player? Mm. You know, like, music is a language. It's a language. It's the most ancient language. So learn mm. to speak music. Pretty good, man. Yeah, man. Rock et roll. We should try to hit our rings and then we could... <laughs> All right, see you next time.